As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey. This is the weekend review and joining me to take a stroll through the action of the last few days is a man who makes points as successfully as Kai Havertz and Christian Pulisic at Selhurst Park, Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> I make points? You make good points. They make oh, good points. I see. You now I get it. Now I'm with you. Now you I make like more it. than three points often as well. Aren't <laughs> you great? In the same sentence, often. <laughs> oh, those Rockwell elongated sentences. Who doesn't love them, <laughs> I ask ye. Joining Taylor and I is a man who hasn't been to any parties with James Madison to our knowledge lately. It's Graham Rutherford. Graham, how are you? I am well right. I have been to a Vardy party, but for some reason oh, he wasn't invited to this party. Uh, maybe he's had too many. James, he wasn't invited to James Madison's party, so he's, he's maybe... Uh, had too many parties over the years so that's uh, well james madison certainly has had too many parties in the last week or so uh, yeah. as is evidenced by <laughs> his being left out of the uh, squad uh, yeah um but but i have presumed graham i've been reading that pubs are open now gyms are open you can get your hair cut now in the uk as of basically today or yesterday um is it is it free to are you free to do things now graham uh, not go to the pub in Scotland. They looked at our record of drinking over the last few decades and we were like, well, <laughs> we'll hold those guys back for a little while longer. Um, but I can get my hair cut. I hadn't had a haircut since early December. So I am feeling fresh today. How long was the hair before you got to the hairdressers today, Graham? Um, it was in a bob. I needed, I needed a quick visit to the fishing shop slash barbers. Um, and... I understand usually you get the 2002 Ronaldo. Is that what you went for today? <laughs> 2002 Ronaldo or 2002 Beckham. Pretty much any haircut, uh, hairstyle from 2002. I've, I've tried them all. Wonderful. I'm looking at images of pubs and stuff being open on this Monday, Graham, and like people are sitting in like sleet and snow just to have like a, a bad warm pint of Fosters. It, it must be great to be alive there right now. <laughs> oh yeah, I've seen those pictures as well. T- t- two old guys having like a cooked breakfast because obviously restaurants are opening again in England, having a cooked breakfast in 
uh, minus degrees temperatures, uh, which it has been in the UK and Europe the past week. It's been great. Spring's been great in in Europe. You know, it's it's snowing and we're all still locked in our house pretty much apart from you can go inside and set a pub and get a haircut. Fantastic. It's what spring's all about. It's so weird though. Like for for me, my experience, I went to like a brewery for the first time in a year to to pick up beer and then immediately leave. And I still I acted as though a character like when they've been unfrozen and now they're in the future acts of just like, is this allowed? Can I do this? How do I pay? Where do I go? Like I was just so not used to being indoors in a restaurant. It's a really weird experience. I don't know if you all have have struggled with that one. But uh, yeah, I, I was not prepared for interacting with humans on Friday. I, I find myself in a weird spot. I had my second vaccine on Sunday and uh, I do feel very rough today. Thank you for asking. But also um, I'm wondering whether I can start saying, oh, it's OK, I'm vaccinated to people because that's not OK to say still, is it? I mean, I still have to wear my mask. I still have to be a good boy and still have to play the uh, social distancing game very much. But uh, at the back of my mind, I'm going to be like, it's OK, I'm, I'm vaccinated. I can I can walk five feet within your grasp now stranger <laughs> is that right am i thinking am i being do you, you know, do you know how you get a and you get a sticker when you voted do you get a sticker when you're vaccinated you get um a little card which from the cdc which tells you when you have both your vaccinations i believe it is uh under us law you have to put a picture of it on instagram as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah that's law that, that's yeah. definitely the case you have to yeah and you have to quietly boast about the brand of your vaccine as well you have to make that abundantly clear as well yeah yeah i'm a pfizer boy all the way i'm very (laughs) i'm pfizer and proud baby (laughs) well anyway we're going to be covering plenty of games in this weekend review we've got the classico coming up we've got tottenham against manchester united we'll get some uh, live updates on hong min sun's uh, vision whether it is returned to him after that terrible incident he suffered uh west ham's five goal fiesta against leicester we'll be looking at and also how manchester city kicked the bucket against bucket aficionado marcelo bielsa what we won't be covering gentlemen is afc wimbledon who were in the relegation zone going into this weekend. They had a 5-1 win over Accrington Stanley, which is a brilliant name for any team, by the way. Accrington Stanley's goalkeeper, gents, is called Toby Savin. S-A-V-I-N. Toby Savin. Goalkeeper. Accrington Stanley. What's the uh, the Guardian has a term for that? Nominative determinism, it is I think the, it is. Yeah, it is the most nominative determinism yeah. in all of soccer, I would think. Apart from maybe Arsene Wenger going to Arsenal. This this feels pretty... pretty. Well, he, did, he did let in five goals, though, so he wasn't doing much yeah. saving in this game, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. It's like in Scotland, there's there's uh, six different players who play for Ross County called Ross. Uh, there's a guy who called Jamie Hamilton who plays for Hamilton. <laughs> and a guy who played here called Jason Scotland, who was in fact from Trinidad and Tobago, so he didn't uh, he didn't conform to that. We tried to call him up, and he decided <laughs> Trinidad and Tobago had a better chance of going to the World Cup. Well, you know, there's there's the uh, there's the tight end for the New England Patriots, and his first name is New England, and his last name is Cheater. I don't know if you all knew that one. But what? That's, uh, that's a big one. No, I'm making that up. <laughs> that, that's that's not real. That's not real. Oh, <laughs> and at least this uh, show remains a safe harbor for New England resentment. <laughs> <laughs> Always stuff. All right. On that note, why don't we turn our attentions to Spain, where the weather looked quite Scottish, I would say, Graham, uh, for this game, the Clasico yeah. uh, in Madrid, Real Madrid against Barcelona. Real Madrid becoming a, uh, coming out two one winners in this one. Uh, the the best line I could come up with was the rain in Spain falls mainly on Kumain and his Barcelona team. <laughs> nearly, I nearly got there with that one. They went into this game with a victory that would have put either of them top. I think Atleti have gone top since then. However, with their uh, draw on 
Sunday. Uh, it was a double deflection from Tony Kroos and a free kick that won it for Real Madrid. Even uh, Tony Kroos is so good, he's giving assists to the opponents now. Um, Real Madrid have won three consecutive Clasicos for the first time since 1978. Taylor, what did you make of this one? Let's start with um, let's start with Real Madrid, who I th- sort of thought did the. It, it was quite similar in many ways to their approach against Liverpool. The low possession thing, lots of counter attacking, doing lots of Madrid things. You know, crowding mm-hmm. the box, trying to stifle the, the key player on the other side, pouncing on the counter. Have I have I made a good allusion there to the Liverpool game? Yeah, I think you have. I think the other thing, maybe not quite connecting to the Liverpool game, but the, the big thing I noticed was their willingness to counterattack aggressively, especially after winning the ball off of Lionel Messi. I think both goals come mm. from Messi being dispossessed. And I think that's partially just seizing the opportunity, partially the awareness that Messi's job for Barcelona, at least this iteration of Barcelona, is to kind of drift around. Usually he's trying to overload on the left, but he has freedom to drift. But I think because of that, other players adjust and you can create some weird imbalances. And maybe there's an awareness that if you win the ball off of him, he might be out of position, other people might be out of position, and that's the time to counterattack swiftly. Madrid seemed to do that and lots of other things really, really well. I thought this was a pretty pretty strong performance from Real Madrid, even though they let, let in that goal in the second half and things are a little bit tighter than maybe they would have liked. Yeah, it was very strong. Certainly squeaky bum time in the last half an hour or so for Real Madrid. It did look like they could uh, uh, drop a couple of points uh, as the game continued, but it, it was very good. Some very good individual performances. So Luka Modric was excellent as usual. Tony Kroos, as I mentioned. Uh, Vinny Jr., as I suppose mm-hmm. he's now known, looked pretty pretty darn good on the break most of the time. Uh, Graham, Graham, what did you make of this Real Madrid team? Um, maybe Maybe we should talk about Casemiro as well, whose uh, who's, who's, uh, early exit from this game might affect Real Madrid's uh, fortunes in the coming weeks. Yeah, I thought it was a, a really good performance from Real Madrid, particularly in, in the first half. It's been a big week for the uh, the Ryan Bailey patented theory of uh, when Tony Kroos plays well, Real Madrid play well because he's been he was good well excellent against Liverpool and was good again in in, in this game did more than than just his goal. So um, yeah, I think. This was exactly the sort of match we we expected, in that Barcelona controlled a lot of the of the ball, and 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 Real Madrid hit out, hit out on the in the counter attack. I think Coman has um, he's deserved a lot of pre- uh, praise in recent weeks for the way he's turned Barcelona around. But I, I feel like did he not watch the Liverpool game because this is it was exact pretty much exactly the same sort of performance from Real Madrid, and they did it very mm. well. But I didn't see anything from Barcelona, I guess, other than the introduction of Griezmann for the start of the second half to give Alba a little bit of a hand out on the left side because it felt like Vasquez and uh, Fede Valverde were giving Alba a really a really tough time out on, on that wing. Other than that, I didn't really see much from Barcelona to counter the threats that, that Real Madrid had and, and in the end they were made to pay for that. Well, what Barcelona did have, Graham, is a special Classico kit they were wearing. Just for this Classico, yeah. they produced this kit, which had a bit more yellow on it. It cost $90. Um, if you're thinking of buying one, A, they lost it. B, it doesn't seem to work in the rain because Leo Messi had to change his shirt <laughs> <laughs> during this game. So, um, and, did, and did you see him shivering yeah. before, he, before he changed that shirt? I, 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 that, that, the sight of Lionel Messi shivering in the rain did strange things to me emotionally. Like, I, 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 it was it was peculiar to see, and I just felt a bit sorry for him, I guess. 
I, I am with you, man. I wrote that down in all caps, messy, fully shake shivering. It was a strange, and I and I did have that, like, is that adrenaline or is that him being freezing? And then he changes out the undershirt for a new one. So I'm guessing it was freezing, but I'm with you, Graham. I was not expecting that. And that also feels, it's like when like the, like the two leaders of the gangs fight and then one wins and now that's it. Like that's the end of the battle. It felt a little bit like that when Lionel Messi is shaking. It's probably not the most confidence inducing thing for Barca players. No, he did. He did nearly score an Olympico at one point. Well, there that must that. have been some oh, confidence yeah, in, yeah. induction there. That was very impressive stuff. He's been trying that all season. That's the closest he's, he's come so far. He tries it at least once in every match they play for Barcelona and that's the closest he's come. But I, I, I don't have the stats to hand, but he's not scored in a classical now for a long time long time i saw someone tweet that malcolm actually scored has scored in a classical more recently that for barcelona than Lionel messi has so that gives you an idea of how long he's gone without a goal in this match i feel is it 2018 or maybe it's even further back but he hasn't scored in in this classic it's a while <laughs> yeah it's, it's been a minute that's for sure if i might touch on uh zinedine zidane gents um it seems like Every time he flips a coin, it lands on the side he wants it to land on, Zinedine Zidane. And he made he made this triple substitution with 20 minutes to go with Marcelo Isco and Mariano coming on. A lot, it seemed like he was in a Classico saving players for the Champions League. In a Classico against Barcelona. And it, it seemed like quite a cocky move to me. Uh, and there weren't many sort of first-team starters on the field for Real Madrid when they when they finished up this game. Graham, do, do, do you think it, 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 he's lucky with these sort of things he takes or he knows exactly what he's doing, Zinedine Zidane? Um, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a, an advocate of Zinedine Zidane. I don't think he gets the credit he deserves, but I have to say in this particular instance, putting on, it wasn't just that he made the three changes, it was the, the players who came off yeah. and the players who came on. So Benzema, Kroos and Vinicius come off and and you know we, we all know Kroos and Benzema are key to this team and Vinicius in the last couple of weeks has been excellent and he was really yeah. good again here and Isco Mariano and who's the third player who comes Marcelo. on Marcelo Marcelo yeah so Mariano in particular Mariano for Benzema that is a drop off <laughs> considerably <laughs> Um, Isco has about a month ago looked like he was starting to find some form but that's disappeared again so even him coming in for Kroos I mean it was a a bold call and it did feel a little bit like Real Madrid were hanging on a little bit towards the end it felt like they were they were playing for 2-1 they weren't going for that that third goal but Mm. you're right Zidane everything he he touches particularly in the big games when it matters most just seems to to turn to gold and um, he got away with it I think it's fair to say here I think that's that's the the takeaway for me, Graham, is that he got away with it. Th- those those final changes, because I think up until then, I think he he had a very smart game plan, which was do a few things to limit what Barcelona would like to do, and then do the things that we do, and just do them very well, and back yourselves to do them, and that's exactly how it went down. But those three changes with Isco, Diaz, and Marcelo coming on, Marcelo as a left winger, left midfielder, like looks okay. He has the one heavy touch on the breakaway that maybe could have been better, but I thought Isco and Diaz. Diaz is doing a lot of of running up top. They're in a 4-1-4-1 at that point, and he is just sort of charging around trying to make plays. I can't fault him so much, but he doesn't really help slow things down. He doesn't help retain possession. And I I genuinely thought Isco was like a guy they'd called in out of the stands because they needed depth. (laughs) Like, he looked so slow and so specifically unaware of when to step and when to track runs that he kept ending up having to go for the professional foul to stop a play and then even then couldn't often get there in time to make the professional foul. I thought that was 
night and day from the times when we saw Isco sort of yeah. sitting behind in that number 10 spot and, and running the midfield. Obviously, that's been a while ago, but I still think of him as a very good player, less so after this performance. He's, he's still got the sorry. He's still got the beard and the the long hair at the moment. Isco doesn't he? Which is, just seems a little bit jarring. I'm pretty sure he, he was the he has been to the barber. There you go. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was the pitch invader in the Granada United <laughs> match. <laughs> <laughs> That's who came on for the last twenty minutes he's in the Clasico. He's just living in different stadiums now. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, so might need me. I'm just going to show up here. It's going to take a minute for me to evict that image from my memory now, Graham. Thank you very much for that one. But, but let's give this go a break. Maybe he's just like a Barcelona special edition shirt. He doesn't work very well in the wet. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll we'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. Um, Taylor, Barcelona. Yeah. Um, it seemed like the, the first 20 and the last 20, I felt like they were pretty on it for this one. But generally, a bit out of sync, a bit out of sorts. Uh, not, it didn't look mm-hmm. very cohesive, which is my catch-all word for when a team doesn't look very good, I suppose. What was, what was going on with the formation yeah. here? It seemed to switch up a little bit, didn't it? It, it does. Was a, it I was think... a back three, it was a back four, and then there was other stuff going on, right? Yeah, I think Kuman, like started to make some changes at halftime, recognizing that things were not working. To your point, Ryan, it's a strange thing that in the first 20 minutes I'm with you that it felt like Barcelona were figuring it out and kind of getting some possession, getting the patterns down, and yet they do go 1-0 down to the 13th minute. So though they're dominant, they're also already still losing in that period. And I think a big part of that is because, as I said earlier, I think Zidane did some some sort of simple things and some basic things and made sure that they were executed really, really well. And that's where the victory comes from. But here, what I spotted was Valverde dropping in, Fede Valverde dropping in from midfield to be almost a right wing back, to Mm. be a fifth defender in a back line. And especially on Madrid's right-hand side, uh, Barcelona's left, what I saw then was that his primary task was, I think, just to stay there wide in that sort of channel and make sure that that Jordi Alba outlet pass is never on because that's obviously what they look for When they're attacking, that's where the goal comes from uh, because I think at that point Valverde is pretty tired and he can't close down the distance and Barcelona start to overload. But I thought the way Madrid put their people into the right spots to just make Barcelona think, to make them slow down, to not have the sort of rhythm that we know they want to get into when they're possessing, I think that disrupts quite a bit. I think the focus on crowding towards the middle and then having three different people tackle Messi at once and sometimes maybe knock him around a little bit. I think that's always going to be part of the game plan as well, especially in a Classico. Yeah. But I think they did disrupt, and I think that's where Kuman has to change it up. Serginho Dest comes off. He did not cover himself in glory uh, defending that free kick. Uh, and I, they, I thought they changed. I'm not sure they actually did end up changing the formation. I think they just ended up moving the personnel around to the extent that by the end of the game it felt like Sort of the, like, just put everybody on and and hope we find a goal. Let's just put all of our attackers on and see what we can come up with. Yeah, and um, that Valverde-Alba sort of battle on that flank, Taylor, as well, that came into play with the first Real Madrid goal as well with um, Jordi Alba just... Letting Valverde go, just just let him just let him run. That's fine. <laughs> and I thought it was uh, it was Alba, and although Alba did get an assist, of course, in this game, Alba and Desso, sort of wide players, kind of let Barcelona down a little bit with their performances. I thought in some ways. Fair I think I, I think Dest did not have the best game we've seen from him in Bar- for Barcelona. I think Alba 
with Madrid intentionally trying to make sure that he is not there, I think it shows you, or he's not able to get the ball as easily. I think it shows you how much they've prioritized defending him and how much of an asset they know him to be when it comes to Barca's attack, as evidenced by when you do finally get uh, to Graham's point, Griezmann over on that left side, Messi drifts over there, you have Jordi Alba overlapping. That's when Valverde is trying to sort of still apply pressure and close things down, and he ends up just running in a circle a couple times, and that's why he's out of position when, when that goal does get created so i think barcelona knowing how important jordi alba is that basically in the second half they do everything they can to bring him into the game and do get a goal i think shows you his importance but also shows you how i think zidane did some some smart managerial stuff in this one i've got one more question on this game gents the mingueza goal which came from a jordi alba cross actually that was where he got his assist antoine griezmann he left the ball do you remember how he did it he sort of jumped over it like he was Mm -hmm. sort of hopscotching over it and i was wondering did he do you think he did that on purpose or was he was he going for a back heel like a like a benzema back heel there or was that just really good from griezmann I think that was the first part of his celebration, actually, and that's the first part of some sort of Fortnite dance, and he was just preempting Mingueza putting that in the back of the net. So, yeah, I don't know. It was weird. It was it was a weird thing, but uh, yeah, I thought Griezmann did actually make a difference, and I, and I, and I think he he's he's been in and out of the team, the Barcelona team, particularly since Usman Dembele has uh, has been doing well recently and and i just think this was a reminder that he is a good player and when it comes to particularly chances in the in the box i know he didn't take this chance but he still had the presence of mind to know what was needed to put the ball for someone else to put the ball in the back of the net and and i Mm. I, I still feel as good as dembele is and he has really hit some form recently he still lacks that sort of composure so just a little bit of a reminder of of griezmann's qualities i thought it's yeah. even just the, it's even the confidence, right? Because I think listening to that and watching it a couple times, I don't hear that loud of a shout or really that much of a shout at all. So I'm sure he gets some sort of warning that he's got players behind him. But I think it is also the awareness, Graham, to your point of, I know there's going to be runners in the box. I have the confidence to back myself that even if I dummy this and nobody's there, like I'm not going to feel foolish. I'm going to go for it anyway. Kind of trusting that there will be late arriving runners, and that there are, hence oh, the goal. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I think he probably knows what he's doing, but I think it is also born of the repetition and the way Barcelona like to attack. If if he did that and there was no one there, that would have looked horrendous. Yeah, it would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> the dummy to no one, always deceptive. All right, I think that's all I got on the Clasico. Any more from you, fabulous gents, before we move on? Um, just that I know this game isn't as it, it doesn't feel like the world stops to watch this game like it did a few years ago but I, mm. I thought this was one of the best classicals in years and just a reminder that actually I, I still think this is probably the best fixture in club football um, all things considered it's still yeah. in that position for me this was a, go- a definitely a good edition of the Classico, albeit one at Real Madrid's training ground, which doesn't feel quite <laughs> yeah. as grand as previous editions. Uh, we're going to move on and talk about some Premier League stuff right after these messages. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back. We are talking Tottenham, Manchester United. This one finishing 3-1 to the Red Devils on Sunday. Uh, This was the ninth time this season and the eighth time away from home that Manchester United have come from behind to win a Premier League game. Conversely, uh, Tottenham giving up points from a winning position. Hmm, Have I seen that before? Not sure. Let's think about that one. Um, Actually, why don't we go straight into that point? Graham, Tottenham, (laughs) and they're they're managing to lose from winning positions. Opta telling us that Spurs have dropped 18 points from winning positions in the Premier League this season, second only to Brighton, who dropped 20. It's the most points a Jose Mourinho side has dropped from winning positions in a single Premier League campaign. Yikes, what is going on here, Graham? Yeah, it's rather concerning for Tottenham at this stage. I think, obviously, Spurs, when they hired Mourinho, um, they were willing to change their ways as a, as a club to... They thought they would they would get some tangible success and some silverware, and of course that could still happen uh, later this month in the in, in the Carabao Cup final. They thought they would become a Mourinho team and everything that that entails. But the problem is the man himself, Mourinho, doesn't seem to know how to build a Mourinho team anymore. Because as you referenced there with the the numbers around how many points Tottenham are losing from winning positions, I think from half time. Let me get this fact right. From half time. No team has failed to win games that they're winning at halftime as, as many times as Spurs have in the Premier League this season, which is seven mm. times they've been winning at halftime and they failed to win a match by full time. Um, that is not what you expect from a Jose Mourinho side. And and it, I just it just feels like he doesn't know how to change things up. And that is a problem when the, his plan A doesn't seem to be working. And I, 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 I'm now of opinion that even winning the Carabao Cup final later this month shouldn't be enough to save Jose Mourinho. And I compare it to when Van Hal in his final game as Manchester United manager won the FA Cup, but United decided that it was still not good enough. And ironically, the man who replaced Van Hal was Jose Mourinho. That hmm. feels like the sort of situation Spurs are coming into now, especially with Harry Kane's future in the mix. If they miss out in the Champions League, it feels like one of the ways they might persuade him to stay is to hire, to make a big name uh, managerial appointment, someone like Nagelsmann, if they could possibly get hold of him, just to prove that they are heading in the right direction. So it feels like the writing is uh, very much on the wall for Mourinho now after this result. Graham, if you don't mind, Ryan, sorry to jump in. I like 
I, earlier in the season, was sure that Tottenham were finishing top four. It felt like Mourinho had the kind of team he wanted. They're fighters. They're going to play with this tenacity, but he has the talent and the depth to get a result. I'm aware that we can probably copy and paste the answers to Chelsea and Man United and Real Madrid for the question about the ask, Graham and Ryan. But, like, what do you think it is that goes wrong for Jose? Uh, because I know there's there's lots of kind of easy answers to this one and maybe, again, retread answers, but I just don't understand how, like in the Tottenham uh, All or Nothing documentary, it seems like he has instilled this new confidence in Eric Dyer of you can be this important player for me, I can build my defense around you, you are the type of player I need. And now it feels like that relationship has deteriorated. It seems like he was the one that we kind of Mm -hmm. all expected to be thrown under the bus in this game. And I don't quite understand how it is that this team that seems solid and ready to fight and ready to be up for anything and seems like they've really bought into his mentality, he's bought into theirs. Now here we are. I'm with Graham. It feels like this is sort of writing on the wall. Jose's on his way out. And I just, I don't fully understand how we got here. So, yeah. so a central tenet of a Jose Mourinho team is defensive organization, right? And having a good defense to do that. So I suppose the, the headline mm. issue here is that maybe they don't have as high quality defense as Jose Mourinho is used to. And this constant plan of trying to sit on a lead and protect it when they're not good enough to defend to do that is the crux of the problem, surely, right? Yeah, but I, I then look at the players that he's been signed at, at Spurs and and also even going back to Manchester United. And it even feels like when he is delivered players, he, he finds fault with, you know, nothing is, right. nothing's ever good mm-hmm. enough. You know, the, the successes, which have been few and far between, particularly at Spurs, are all down to him. And when things uh, aren't uh, going well, it's nothing to do with him. And mm. and his post-match comments after this match were along the lines of, what they, he was asked, what went wrong, Jose? And basically his, his answer was, well, you know, we were up against a high-quality team with high-quality players. And I'm just... I, couldn't help myself casting back to when he was Manchester City manager and everything was down to the fact that he didn't have the players apparently yeah. to win games. <laughs> and this is, I know that, you know, Bruno Fernandes and a, and a couple extras here, but it's by and large the same group of players. <laughs> you know, you look at Fred, uh, Luke, Luke Shaw, Marcus Rashford, all players who have significantly improved since Mourinho left Manchester United. And I just thought that was one of the things that, that showed him up and after this game, actually, was the fact that he he put the focus on the quality of that Manchester United team. You don't get away with that so much when you were the previous manager of the team you've just lost to. <laughs> yeah, the death stare at Luke Shaw was uh, was one of my favorite moments, I will say, of the game. <laughs> but then afterwards, I can't remember if it was the NBC Sports like match pundits or if it was the people in the studio. Maybe it was Robbie Musto. But he was saying, like, oh, Jose is going to say the defense isn't good enough, but he's brought in three defenders, or how, however exactly. many it is. And it was just like oh, we're doing this again? This is the Jose thing where he doesn't have enough players and then the ownership reminds him that he bought four of those players and it just, it all feels like the familiar pattern of, oh, now he's going to start throwing people under the bus. Oh, he has a sort of out of nowhere angry attack on a player and the opposition manager, which is his way of deflecting responsibility after the game. Paul Pogba obviously should have been sent off and how dare Ole Gunnar Solskjaer talk about Son Heung-min having just talked about <laughs> Paul Pogba himself. Oh, Jose. Jose's always a conundrum He's for wonderful. me. But I just, more so than ever after this game in which Tottenham are winning at halftime and once again, not winning at full time. This isn't a, a new point, gents, but Mourinho in the past has had his Matarazzi's, his Sergio Ramos's, even his yeah. Didier Drogba's. He doesn't really have that at Tottenham. It felt like he was trying to maybe make Eric Dyer that, but Eric Dyer is now the person who just has his hands up in the air instead while watching 
Fred score goals instead of defending them. Uh, and, you know, you see Harry Kane in the documentary where he's like, his team talk is, come on, let's go and score more goals than the opposition. <laughs> Do a really good game, yeah? Um, and that's the, it, it's not quite, it doesn't feel like Matarazzi in the dressing room kind of kind of situation. Is, is, there, is there something in that, in that he doesn't feel he's got the chemistry or a particular leader on the field in this team? Um, a little bit. I, I actually felt that, that Kane probably was one of those players, but then bef- the morning of this game, there, there's a report in The Athletic that Kane is uh, going to consider <laughs> leaving Spurs if they miss out on the top four this season. So I'm thinking, well, that's another one of, uh, you know, Marine, the, the dominoes falling um, for yeah. Mourinho. So I, but then that, that just comes down to, and these are not original points. There's been so much discussion about Mourinho that I think we're, we're almost always kind of uh, treading over old ground but players are different now it seems like he has lost the he's he's lost the understanding of what makes the modern player tick and how to get modern players fighting for him so you know it, it's just bizarre to me that he he was able to find players at Porto Chelsea Real Madrid Inter who were all willing to fight for him but his his last two clubs he's not been able to I don't think you can put that down to just bad luck I think that's down to the manager who was at those two clubs and laterally even at Chelsea as well so there's just a consistent pattern I think you can probably get away with it after one club and say well maybe things weren't right but as it's happened time and time again and this season has been like the second season and third season mashed into one for Mourinho it's all been accelerated this has got to be his worst tenure so far I mean Mm. what has he really achieved at Spurs at least at Manchester United they won some trophies and qualified for the Champions League and finished second in the league. What what's he done at Spurs? Challenge for the title for a month? That's not enough. This this is this has been his his worst club so far. I would say quite comfortably. I mean, Dele Ali learned how to microwave baked beans. I think that's pretty that's pretty <laughs> that's important. I think I think like I agree with Graham and and I think again maybe not like new ground here, but I, I look at modern managers or like in the current uh, football landscape and it seems like there's kind of two models right now again oversimplifying but there's like the pep clop nagelsman model of very detailed very like everything is structured everything has to be a certain way but all of those seem to be with an emphasis on attacking style and scoring goals and i think the alternate approach is more of the zidane maybe even the solshire of like you all are very good players i'm going to put you in a in your positions with a rough idea of what I want you to do. I'm not going to overcomplicate and I'm going to trust you to be the kind of big performers. And I think both of those are not really ways that I would describe Jose Mourinho, neither of those philosophies. I think his is still very detail oriented, still very hardworking, hard drilling, but it's defensive. And I think fundamentally that's maybe just not as much fun. I think in the modern game where you have Liverpool attacking all the time and City attacking all the time and the other big powers in Europe doing the exact same thing. I don't know if players maybe want to do that defensive work. I think it takes a certain type of player who's going to really enjoy the grittiness of the performance, the grittiness of the fight. And if you're not winning, if you're not getting results from that, then are you still going to be motivated to fight that same way? That's where I see some of the kind of downturn in form from a few of these players and think you can do that for the first season or two, but eventually it starts to feel like, oh, great, we're fighting and defending ruthlessly to finish fifth. That's Mm. what I wanted. That's what I'm here for. Well, there is someone on this very podcast who put money on Tottenham to win the title back in October, not long after Tottenham put six goals past Manchester United. I'm not going to say who it is because that person is very embarrassed by that. I, I honestly wasn't sure if it was me. I don't gamble. That's the only thing. But I would have done the same thing, man. I was like, oh, this is it. He's got him figured out. It's going to be a great season. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised at how this this turn has uh, has been taken. Uh, certainly after the the start that Tottenham had to this season. Let's so say. in your face, Graham. Graham yeah, was Graham. The one who that was everybody. you. I was referring to, of course, <laughs> not not anyone else. Uh, I have no idea be... what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me. That was someone else. Another Scottish guy. <laughs> let's uh, let's move on quickly and talk about Manchester United. Then Taylor, it seemed like you know a, ver- a very good second half performance certainly from Manchester United. Um, some interesting stuff going on here with Pogba and Rashford, kind of switching around quite a bit which was quite interesting and and Pogba who I thought this is one of the better games I've seen him play in recent years Taylor just I would agree because he's doing the Pogba thing of making these incredibly complicated things of holding off two players while turning while playing a 30-yard pass look very easy Mm. and it is decidedly not but Ryan this is one where I'm going to hold my hands up and say I usually try to bring some level of objective analysis or here's a tactical thing they were doing I, this is the most excited I've been about a Manchester United win in a very long time. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know why, man. It's just that I think at halftime, because of the the disallowed goal and then Tottenham coming back and scoring, you see the frustration in the players as they're coming off. They're still arguing. They're still fighting. And it just for some reason, I, like, I am loath to compare amateur soccer to professional soccer. But I will just say, like, I have been in that locker room at halftime. And it's the worst because everybody's mad. Everybody's arguing about how it's not fair. Everybody's over-talking. You've got one group talking about how this needs to be better. You've got one group talking about how the ref needs to be better. And no one's really focused. And that's the manager's job, obviously. But that... What I've been hearing, the narrative on Solskjaer has been, he's, he's clearing out some of the players that don't fit there. He's got his mentality. The players like him. The locker room gets him. He gets the locker room. It felt to me like this is the time. If he truly has this locker room, if he truly gets these guys, he will be able to direct that frustration into motivation and get them to come out and play. And if he doesn't, then that will be really obvious as well. I wasn't sure which one we were going to get. And I would argue he motivated that team as much as they could have been. They come out, they start knocking. And in a different game, I think I see some of those early misses and get frustrated and think, oh, here we go again. They can't finish. They need better players. But this time it felt a little bit like the old Manchester United, honestly, under Ferguson of just grinding and they keep going and they keep going and they keep going. It's the Bayern thing. And eventually they grind their way through and get something and then they build on it. And even when Tottenham were knocking late, I really didn't think they were going to score, even when it seems like they should have and they probably should have. It just it never felt like it because I think Man United bought in so hard in that second half and Tottenham did not. I think one of the most positive things about that second half performance was how many times have we spoken about Manchester United being unable yeah. to break mm-hmm. down a team, a, you know, a low defensive block, and obviously Spurs set up for that second half to pretty much protect what they have, and Manchester United suffocated them. Manchester United played through them at will, you know, scored three goals in that way and a fourth one, which should have stood as well, and it was just a very different sort of Manchester United. I was I was confident there was going to be some form of reaction. I very much enjoyed uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's angry face at the end of mm-hmm. the first half, which was like a man being told to look angry, like try and look angry, Ollie. Uh, and uh, so I, I did think there was going to be some sort of reaction. I, I actually predicted the reaction would come in the form of a red card. It felt like the end of that first half was starting to boil over. I thought Cavani or Bruno Fernandes would maybe get sent off. But as you said, as you said, Taylor, they, they harnessed that frustration into, I think, the best 45-minute performance they've put in all season. I thought it was yep. really, really impressive. So- and I thought it was... And Graham, Graham, you're right about the, the way they came out, but I would say the way they closed as well, equally important, that in other games this season, when they do get 
a one when they pull one back and now it's a draw or maybe they get the lead then it tends to be Manchester United who sit too deep and get too defensive and get too reactionary and sort of invite the opponent back on them though Tottenham do get chances late that Man United end up getting another goal to really seal it it, that also felt like a, a different sort of approach to killing off the game than we've seen from them in a yeah. while. And I think maybe they just learned from Tottenham that don't sit off entirely and, and go ultra defensive in the second half. And maybe you find a way back and then uh, just keep pressing and you end up getting the win. Maybe that's the way they went with it. So Man United owe thanks to VAR. And I think it was Michael Oliver doing the VAR in this huh. game, wasn't it? So they owe thanks to him for disallowing that Cavani goal, right? Because <laughs> that is what inspired this second half. Do we have any thoughts on that incident? It was uh, Hillman's son kind of trying to pull Scott McTominay back. Scott McTominay tries to sort of very gently flick him away. Uh, and uh, obviously, Hillman's uh, son is blinded. And uh, I think he's the only <laughs> player to score a goal while being blind in the Premier League, actually, uh, <laughs> subsequently. So uh, uh, what, what do we think about that foul, uh, Graham? Uh, lack, just, lack thereof. Yeah, just a non... I think... I think um... I'm not normally one for, you get a lot of people, particularly ex-pros who say referees don't get the game because they never played the game. But this was one of those, and I'm not usually one of those people, but this was a particular incident where I felt like there was a misunderstanding of why Scott McTominay has put his arm out like that, which was Son is trying to put his arm across to try and foul McTominay first. And so Mm. the, the, the slight reaction, which the contact is, is minimal, let's say, uh, in the first place. But the the reason there is contact is because Son is in the process of fouling McTominay. And uh, so that kind of lack of footballing understanding, I felt, was was key to the decision that was ultimately made, which was obviously the wrong one. Wrong, but also right in the end. Maybe we'll leave it like that. Oh, I, I loved it. I thought it was a great call. I did not think it was a great call. I would say, <laughs> like, like if let's say Graham's having a tough day, and I go over and I put my sh- my hand on Graham's shoulder and I say, hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. But Graham, does, maybe I'm the reason Graham is having a tough day. He doesn't <laughs> want my hand on his shoulder, so he does that, like, the shoulder shrug to get me off. Like, right there, to get my hand off, rather. <laughs> a double entendres. Uh, and, like, in that moment... Like he's moving his shoulder, he's maybe moving his elbow, but it's because I have like physically engaged him, and so he's just shaking me off, and that's what McTominay is doing. That sort of thing happens all the time in soccer and football, I should say. And I like I don't even blame Son because th- there is an idea that if you get smacked in the face, if there's any sort of like finger in the eye, like just whatever, you're just not expecting that, and so there is going to be a jarring moment where you're going to yeah. fall over probably. I don't begrudge him that, but I think as soon as you look at the replay. And I would even go so far as to say that I think McTominay's hand gets held up a little bit on on like on Sun, so that when he gets it past, there's like that much more forced because like the resistance has been building. And I think in slow motion, it looks intentional. It looks like he's smacking him in the face. And I think it's just a thing that happens. But that that's the first time in a while that I have truly felt like VAR is getting it wrong because that's just going back and really. Re like re like iterating. What's the what's a re uh what's the lawyery term? Relitigating. Yeah, thank you. It's like it's it's not clear and obvious. I think that was Solskjaer's point afterwards. It's not a a very obvious. Oh, that happened. This needs to come back. It feels like I don't know why this was something. What, what, yeah, exactly. And it rem- like like I go back. I, I apologize, uh, Gio Reyna fans, that this is always my point of reference. But there's the game last season where behind the play, he just gets frustrated because somebody bumps into him, and he just sweeps the leg. He absolutely kicks out and and fouls off the ball, and a goal gets disallowed. That's the correct decision in that moment. He's kicked out. Whether or not it's involved in the play, you cannot 
foul somebody who then can no longer participate. Here, I think because Son is the one who's engaging and then it's incidental after the fact, to me, it just, it never should have been given and I found myself confused, but then I'm happy that it did motivate. So maybe you're right, Ryan. Maybe it was the, uh, the key factor in all this. All is well in the end and lads, it's Tottenham is back. <laughs> There we are. All right, gents, we're going to move on and talk very quickly about a couple other Premier League games right after these important messages. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's turn our attentions to the Etihad Stadium. Manchester City took on Leeds and did not win. 2-1 to Leeds, this one finished on Saturday. Ten-man Leeds, no less, who got this one done with two shots on goal for their two goals. Uh, City having 29 shots on goal, Taylor. This feels like... uh, I was very excited about this game because it feels like the two entertainers playing against each other, and it was quite entertaining. It was. It was really entertaining. It was really good work from Leeds, and obviously the fitness requirements to play under Bielsa, whatever they are, I assume they're grueling and not fun, but they paid off, because anytime you can handle Man City 
despite having a, a man sent off in the first half is always impressive. With all of that said, this did feel to me watching it a- again and trying to like look for takeaways, look for moments. Because I think anytime a big team, uh, a league leading team loses, there is that sort of, okay, let's go back and look and figure out what leads figured out and how they were able to play through this and i think the answer is if man city were maybe a little bit more up for this one it finishes six to one and i'm not Mm. trying to be discourteous to Leeds. i just think fundamentally man city played mostly the game that we've come to expect from them i just think they lack a little bit of sharpness maybe there's some fatigue maybe they're looking ahead or just feel like they can kind of take their foot off the gas uh but here i think they were made to pay for it from a really hardworking and technically very well drilled Leeds team Maybe it's when you make seven changes to your team, Taylor, that, that might things be can change that for, might for, be for Manchester City. Uh, RIP everyone's fancy team. Guardiola does it again in that respect. But there was, I mean, obviously he's he's saving up for the Champions League. They've got an FA Cup semi-final coming up. Then they've got the League Cup final coming up after that. So lots of important stuff on the horizon. And this result ultimately probably won't affect their season too much. But I did wonder w- whether Graham Pep could have taken it a little more seriously with this selection. Yeah, I mean, to me, my my takeaway from this game, and not just from this game, but also the the Dortmund game as well before it in the Champions League, is just that there's a little bit of doubt starting to creep into City's game. That's how it looks to me at the moment. However, the fact that Guardiola leaves, even when they're looking for a late goal, leaves De Bruyne and Mares on the bench. They didn't come off the bench for the, for this match. Suggests to me that he's not actually not that bothered at all. <laughs> and now I'm just looking for <laughs> I'm just looking for things. Um, obviously, it's a massive month that for City, as as you say. So my concern is just if 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 these doubts start to accumulate, then you start to get into this situation where Guardiola overthinks things again in the Champions League, and and obviously you know he doesn't want to do that given how things have gone in recent seasons, but I don't think they'll be that bothered by by losing this one. They have such a cushion at the top of the Premier League. Although, having said that, for the first time in a long time, I don't know, Taylor, as a, as a Man United fan, if you did this, I did look at the fixtures, just because if Manchester United win their game in hand, it's eight points, then there's a Manchester derby, let's say United mm-hmm. win that, then it's five points, then the margin becomes a little bit narrower for City. It's a case of whether they run out of games, Manchester United, and if they can continue to win games, but... I'm still not that worried. I think there I was saw, a, yeah. if, if they they had so many chances sitting in this game that they put on their sharper players earlier in the match. Um, I'm with you, Taylor. I think they, they stick a few pass leads. I, I, I would love for there to be a title challenge. Unfortunately, I saw Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's reaction to that question like before I really thought about it in depth and them asking him, like, hey, it could be. They lost. You got the derby. It could be on. And he just looked at the reporter like, you know it's not on. Like, you know we're not going to catch them. Why are you asking me this? So that did not instill confidence. That said, I think if City make little mistakes, uh, I am convinced that Pep thought he started Kevin De Bruyne because I – had 12 players listed in my starting 11 because I was sure Kevin De Bruyne and Zinchenko were on the field and then I realized they were the same player (laughs) in my mind. So maybe he made the same mistake and thought he started Kevin De Bruyne at at central midfield instead of his left back. (laughs) Indeed. I actually forgot that Zinchenko is by trade a midfielder. He's been playing at left back for so long that when people started talking about the fact that he, um, he was playing in his preferred position, I was like, what? And then went back and checked and was like, oh yeah, he was signed as a midfielder. Yeah. Converted long ago. Now there is um, there's such a thing as the Manchester City archetype goal, isn't there? With a you know a, a fullback or a wide player pushing down the right to the right to the um, touchline and pulling the goal, uh, you know, pulling the ball back into the into the box for a tap in. That's we've seen that a hundred times. I think we almost saw the Bielsa goal here 
the first Leeds goal here, which was, you know, the wide long pass with a cross coming into the nearest player, a little layup and then get smacked in. I think I've seen that happen quite a lot with Leeds and it seems like they that, that's their that's their oove. That's what they do, Leeds. And um, Graham, it was a very impressive performance from Leeds all round, wasn't it? Despite not having much up top, Patrick Bamford getting eight touches in, in this game and them having two shots from their two goals. So uh, they were certainly good value, weren't they? Yeah, and, and I think the, the first um, 20 minutes or so, um, Leeds had a, a couple of good opportunities. I thought Rafinha on the right side was giving Mendy all sorts of problems. And then obviously the goal comes from Hela Costa, um, shrugging off, it must be Cancelo was playing. Yeah, it was game. Cancelo, yeah. Yeah, there was so much rotation that <laughs> I've forgotten who <laughs> was playing where. But yeah, shrugs off Cancelo and then, um, you know, the, the ball set back to, to Dallas. But that that was, that was um, we saw that a, a few times from Leeds United. Uh, and in a way, this was, enter- this was an entertaining match, but the, the second half after the sending off meant very much became uh, attack versus defence. And I kind of wanted to see what Leeds would have done in the second half had they had 11 men, because it felt like in, in, in the typical Leeds Bielsa way, they were going toe-to-toe with, with Manchester City in this game. And even though they got the win in the end, it did feel like there was quite a large element of luck involved. And I, I would have quite liked to have seen with the rotation City had, whether they would have been able to to pull off a win in ordinary circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think it would have been a really fascinating game because I think Leeds did do a couple little things to specifically deal with Man City. Ryan, you're absolutely right that there's that like the city goal, the FIFA goal of dribble into the box, square to somebody who's now wide open and they pass it in. That is how they score. But prior to the sending off, Leeds, what I spotted was either they would have Kevin Phillips drop but kind of stand around the penalty spot or one of the two center backs when they were collapsing back would always stay a little bit higher and twice in the first 30 minutes uh one time it's Yorente, one time it's cooper they stay a little bit higher or further away from their own goal and they intercept that pass when it cuts when it comes across and i think there's an awareness that's what city want to do let's keep one person in that space to at least cause them problems if not intercept the ball outright once they lose one of those center backs to a straight red, uh, then I think that's a harder task and they struggle with it a bit more. So I thought they did some like little defensive things to cause City problems. And then I think in contrast with what I was saying about Mourinho, when you have a manager that is asking so much of you and Bielsa clearly expects elite physical performances from his players, if nothing else, like you see Calvin Phillips win a ball or like track, like, like go for a tackle, miss it, sprint 30 yards back, win that tackle, then drive forward with the ball 40 yards. And just yeah. that level of fitness to outrun people. Both goals come from somebody just outrunning Fernandinho who has position both times. I think that speaks volumes about the level of energy and enthusiasm the Leeds players have. I, it's, I'm interested that you mentioned Phillips and Fernandinho there because I had a realization during this game there's been a lot of talk about who replaces Fernandinho at City. I think yeah. Calvin Phillips has to be a pretty yeah. good candidate Ooh. for that. Yeah, that that does feel like the Man City. Like they got him for twenty five million. Are you kidding? Like that just feels like the deal where they somehow pull in a midfielder that they have no business getting for a smaller amount of money, and then he ends up working really well. Yeah, a very good performance from from Phillips definitely in this game, and not so much from Fernandinho who um, did foul Rafinha quite badly and got away with it. Rafinha un- mm. unable to finish uh, the game oh, after yeah. that foul, whereas uh, Liam Cooper getting the red card for catching Gabriel Jesus on the follow through. Not a great challenge with the studs up, of course, but um, seemed like there wasn't quite 
uh, it wasn't quite fair that that was uh, how things panned out, perhaps. Is there any more on this game, gents, before we move on to the next one? Just that this was a game where I missed fans. Can you imagine the away end oh, at yeah. the home of the, the Premier League leaders when Leeds scored that goal late on? It would have been fantastic. So, fans... Please come back soon. <laughs> I, and I agree entirely with Graham because this game, it felt like you you want the atmosphere of that winning goal. Even Classico, I think that game wants to be played at the Bernabeu. It doesn't want to be played at their second or third facility because, of of course, Madrid have three or four facilities. Uh, and I would say I was critical of VAR in the last game. I will say I, I didn't think this should have been a red at first. And then there's that one angle when I think Andre Mariner, the referee, is watching. And you see it from the one angle where it's just you see the player's knee just completely bend. And it's like, oh, no, yeah, that's a red. And I thought the commentator in this case understood the rules had been briefed properly were able to explain yes he gets the ball but you still can't come through with your studs that high that's dangerous that's reckless that's a red card I thought that was a good usage of it and I thought it was well explained and I think that is when VAR does make sense indeed it does Thank you very much, Taylor. Let's move on to our final game of this weekend roundup. West Ham, who took on Leicester City. Five goals in this one. West Ham scoring three goals and almost giving away that lead. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? West Ham getting back into the top four with this one as well, putting some pressure on Leicester in that top four. No Mikel Antonio or Declan Rice uh, with West Ham, so they, you know, getting this done without two of their best players as well. Very impressive. Leicester, of course, missing players as well. James Madison and Chaldrian Perez missing out for reportedly breaching COVID protocols for going to some parties with Graham Rudman. Um, it's 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 interesting, Taylor, with um, West Ham's. You know, ability to score three goals and give their fans cardiac arrests as they almost blow the game each time. I mean, to Graham's point again, like, is is this a game where if they have home fans, do you think that that comeback happens? Like, is that too simple of an explanation? Because for me, once you're 3-0 up, if you don't have the fans there, if you don't have that desire to really keep like, keep scoring the goals, keep getting the cheers. Maybe you score one more, but it gets disallowed and you sort of lose the momentum. I do wonder if that lets Leicester back in a little bit more well, or maybe just a little bit of confidence as well. In this instance, Taylor, West Ham do worse when their fans are there. So <laughs> I, I think say, that's a good point. <laughs> They're in the relegation zone if their fans are allowed in this season. <laughs> and on, on that note, gents, can we talk about David Boys? What is a David Moyes, I think, is what I'd like to ask uh. you. Because, you know, th this this team were doing some really good stuff. Loads of pressure. The way they stole the ball for the third goal. The, the passing game looks really good. They're exploiting space in ways I've not kind of seen West Ham do. This seems a long way from what I sort of envisaged David Moyes being, particularly at Manchester United. Maybe this is a bit more hearkening back to his Everton days here. Ta Taylor, yeah. what, yep. what, what is a David Moyes? I, I thought about the Everton connection as well, because Suchek being in there reminds me of a certain other very tall, strong midfielder who was instrumental to David Moyes at Everton. I think that's sort of it. It's it's a it's a drilled, like hard fighting team that you can tell that everybody is willing to sort of put their body, uh, their their chest region on the line. If you're Mark Noble, I forget what he blocks with in, in the later <laughs> stages of the game, but it was aggressive and i i do think there's that like sense of team spirit that maybe he brings in to a club gosh this there's no way to make this sound not negative but like they're the stories of him not fully understanding how big of a club manchester united were in relation to everton and i do think a club like west ham is one where he sort of can do what he wants to do but not have players coming in necessarily that feel like they outrank him that feel like they have more sway and i mean look at Allaire, like who maybe does or maybe just doesn't fit the system and i think if that's a 
Lukaku and you've spent a ton of money on him to bring him to Man United or or other clubs like are you able to get rid are you able to sort of move that player on and figure out something else on the fly I don't know but I think at West Ham he has that backing and I think then the team back him and there's a sort of mutual respect and then Jesse Lingard just becomes the best player in the world and that doesn't hurt either <laughs> yeah. yeah I was reading I was reading this morning that PSG, Real Madrid, and Inter are among the clubs interested in signing Jesse Lingard this summer. I mean, 2021 has been wild for Jesse Lingard, that that's the clubs that are looking at him, apparently. I mean, 2021, lest we forget, like Ryan began this by saying West Ham are now putting pressure on Leicester for their top four aspirations. Like, that is not a sentence I was ready for at the beginning of the season. <laughs> Have you looked at the table recently? Because it is, it looks like when FIFA just lets like Aston Villa win the title. And you're like, come on guys. Like that is not what's going to happen here. Like city United, Leicester city, West Ham is not the top four that I was ready for <laughs> this season. I mean, I'm here for it though. It's wonderful stuff. I'm True. very much enjoying it. Um, but yeah, if, if you just started watching soccer in February, you'd have to assume that Jesse Lingard was like right up there with Neymar as one of the best players in the world, because he's, I think it's eight goals he scored since he started playing there. Very, very impressive stuff. Not so impressive from Leicester, of course, though, not helped, as we mentioned, by missing a few players here. It just seemed like the defending was so poor in, in this one. Like on the first goal, it was Soufal and Lingard just, you know, nobody near them. Nobody near them at all. No one tracking Bowen at all for the second goal. Just lots of casual jogging. It was like Sunday league defending for the second goal, it seemed like. The, the long ball coming over. It just, I couldn't imagine it being dealt with much worse, much more casually, I should say, than, than Leicester did there. Uh, Graham, it seemed like pretty, pretty poor all around from Leicester, but it was their defence that stood out to me as being pretty disappointing yeah it was i thought it was just a really flat performance it was yeah. as if they were they were counting on uh, Moyes' great work in proving that 3-0 is the most dangerous scoreline in football <laughs> it's true and that they, they weren't going to do anything until they conceded three goals but um yeah really poor it's happening again for leicester isn't it that mm. was one of my big takeaways from this this felt like a pivotal game for leicester particularly with chelsea winning their game i think they're two points ahead of chelsea in in, in fifth now um, or, or it's very tight, certainly. Right. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, it just feels like if you were to ask me what that top four is going to be, it's not going to include Leicester City at th- this point. I think their final three games, I've got them written down, if I can just find them. Yeah, final three games are Manchester United, Chelsea and Spurs. Woof. Yeesh. It's yeah. definitely happening again. I mean, they've got they've got some... Uh, They've got some easier fixtures over the next few weeks um, in the Premier League. I know they've got that FA Cup semi-final, but those three games to finish when they're in the way they are right now doesn't fill me with much confidence they're going to stick around in that top yeah. four. Leicester and again, Leicester. There's, there's, the, there's the caveat of, of the three players being suspended uh, for the COVID-19 protocol thing, yeah. but it's it, it still... I, I, I agree with Graham that it, it still feels like there are just little things going wrong for Leicester. Like I would point to that third goal because I, I do think Leicester were very flat. I do think that they didn't close the lines. They didn't make it difficult for West Ham to find a way through. Certainly West Ham had a very good game. I'm not trying to say it was one team was just so bad that it was easy for the other. But I think there's like in my mind, it's pretty clear that they win it at halftime. Brendan Rodgers gave some some hairdryer treatments across the board. And the motivating idea was everybody's got to work harder. We've got to be more aggressive in our runs. We've got to just get out there and there's got to be more energy. And not just that they concede a third goal in, what, the 48th minute? So like three minutes after the restart. But the way it happens is uh, Castagni, who's now become the right center back, 
plays a 30-yard ball forward into the feet of Ianacio, who's dropped back, but then he sprints after it. And and to me, that was a, like, he's been told, we've got to, you know, once that ball goes forward, everybody's got to step. We've got to be aggressive. We've got to support the runs once that pass is made. So Castagne goes sprinting forward, and it's a really poor touch from Ianacio. He basically plays it right into the path of a West Ham player, and then West Ham counterattack into the space that Castagne has completely vacated, and that's where the goal comes from. And so... Even there, the instruction and the halftime adjustment basically set them up to then concede a third, and it ends up with them losing 3-2. So I thought even just some of the reaction is a worrying sign for Leicester. Though they do pull two back, though they do have the suspensions and some injury issues, I think overall, I'm with Graham that this is a worrying game if you're a Leicester fan. It is indeed. But this did have one of my favorite things in soccer in it with a a goalkeeper coming up for a corner uh, in in a league game, which I think is always wonderful. And uh, obviously it it was necessary at this point, but I I would love to Schmeichel to much like his father used to do back in the day, do some damage in the box, in the opposition box in the 90 something minute. That would have been fun. This was a good weekend for that as well, because Ter Stegen comes up for the the final corner in a classical and Mm. then uh, Ilish Mariba smashes the crossbar. With a with a shot, but yeah, good Didn't, weekend. And Ter Stegen gets a volley there, as yeah, I recall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gents, we have covered plenty of action from this weekend. One final thing for us to do: you've both selected uh, an eleven of the weekend. Let's quickly dash through those, uh, gents. Why don't we start with the goalkeepers? Taylor, who was your goalkeeper of the weekend? I had Dean Henderson. I thought he was uh, very good in goal. I thought he made some big saves. Uh, he came off his line, I think, three times to extinguish chances, which is the most of any uh, goalkeeper from Man United this season, uh, which I think like shows you the way he's playing, the confidence he has. But the biggest one to me was he comes out to get a ball, Lindelof slides in and puts it out of bounds for a corner, obviously doesn't hear or doesn't follow through. And instead of screaming at him, Henderson picks him up and it's like, hey, good job, and sort of bigs him up and gets back to the goal. And I and I think that is a the spirit idea, the collective spirit of Man United is not a thing that I've seen as much. That felt like a return of it slightly. So I'm giving it to Dean Henderson. Yep, Henderson for me is, is, as well. I just think it's, yeah. it's quite symbolic that he is now very much Man United's first choice goalkeeper. And the fact that he played in the Europa League and then Henderson was back in for the big game in the Premier League proved that. Am I imagining things, or did Henderson try and save Son's shot with his legs rather than his hands and made the wrong? Yeah, he did. There? Yeah, but it, it felt that that very much felt like a De Gea ism. Yeah. That's what mm. De Gea does. He's been learning from De Gea, but maybe don't pick up any more of De Gea's habits. Yeah, is it maybe is it maybe that the uh, the goalkeeper coach knows De Gea does that? It's like, all right, we're all gonna do that now because I'm just gonna teach everybody how to do that <laughs> rather I mean, than try you to. Can break use him. your hands. I, I'd have thought that'd be better in that situation. Anyway, I digress. Uh, defensive lines, Taylor. Who, who've you got in your back line for the weekend? Uh, I had Jordi Alba as my left back. I thought uh, though they like Madrid do a lot to negate his influence in the second half, especially he goes into it. He uh, gets the assist for for the uh, goal, and I thought overall had a very good performance. I had Harry Maguire uh, for just putting in a strong display display on the weekend. Uh, it was it was confusing for me my right center back and my right back, but in the end I've gone for. Uh, Mingiza at right back. I moved him over there. Ailing is maybe my honorable mention. And John Stones as my center back, even though he could have also been a number 10 yeah. <laughs> against Leeds, he was in and around the box routinely. He has some shots, none of them particularly good. But I thought how often he was striding forward with the ball, splitting lines both on the dribble and with passes. I just thought it was a good performance from John Stones, though not for uh, Man City. On the left side of my defense, I have gone for a little bit of a left field choice. Granite Zaka who played there for Arsenal against Sheffield United. Obviously, they're down to bare bones with uh, 
Kieran Tierney, cry, cry, out until the end of the season. Uh, and I thought he did well. I thought he, I thought he was good enough there to warrant, particularly a player playing out of position gets a little bit more credit when they do well there. So yeah, I've gone Zaka there. Willie Orban for uh, Leipzig assist and very impressive against uh, Wolfsburg. They played the weekend. Kurt Zuma was my other centre-back. Chelsea uh, against Palace. Uh, scored in that game. My right back, I've gone for Lucas Vasquez just because I felt he gave Real Madrid a, a decent um, outlet on that right side throughout the, particularly the first half when he contributes for the first goal and just felt he he um, was one of their standout performers. So yeah, that's my backline. Good stuff. Granite Xhaka in a team of a weekend. Who'd have thunk it? Hot <laughs> snow is falling up today. Um, midfield picks, Taylor. Uh, I had Calvin Phillips in my as my sort of anchor. Uh, yep. We talked about how good he was uh, for Leeds. I had Luka Modric as one of my midfielders, and I had uh, Dallas from Leeds as my other one. Stuart Dallas, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think for, for the goal, obviously, but I also just how much effort and energy and distance was covered by that Leeds midfield. I had to put at least another Leeds player in there as well. Um, I've gone for four in my midfield, so Paul oh, is in there, Stuart Dallas ooh. is in there, Jesse Lingard is in there, all players we've, we've spoken about already. And my fourth one is actually uh, Federico Chiesa for Juventus, who very much feels like he's becoming the player that, that Pirlo, if he gets a chance to, should 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 build around. And he was he was very good against Genoa. Honourable mention for, I know he's a bit of an attacker, but I'm squeezing him in on the left side, uh, Martinelli for Arsenal against uh, Sheffield United. I thought was a, maybe another nail in the uh, the coffin of uh, Obama Yang's Arsenal career, given that he he did more than that match than Obama Yang's done all season. Ah, lots of love for Arsenal today, Graham. I like it. Very good. <laughs> um, and front lines finally, yeah. Taylor. Uh, well, I, I'm I'm a, a silly person, and for some reason I listed my number 10 as an attacker instead of a midfielder, the way Graham did, because my number 10 was Jesse Lingard, and then my two forwards were Kareem Benzema and Ensign and, and Cavani. Yeah. Man, that's a hard first name to say. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I've gone for Cavani as well, but my other forward is Alan San Maximin, who has maybe... Ooh, that's a good call. That's who has, the correct answer. Who has maybe single-handedly saved Newcastle United, turned around their season. I feel like they might stay up now on the back of his performance against Burnley. And if he can repeat that, they'll they'll get a, a couple more good results for the end of the season. He changes that team entirely. So he's in my team of the weekend for that. Pretty solid team picks there, gents. I always say Edinson Gavani. Uh, he's one of those, if, if we were to write off Jose Mourinho, I think I'd written him off in a similar fashion, but he's very much proved us wrong. Even He's got the same redemption arc as David Moyes, arguably, in, a, <laughs> in that he's, a, he's just so professional, isn't he? And just wants it. He's just running all the time. I'm very, very impressed with uh, this spell that Cavani's having at Man United. I, I certainly am as well. And his uh, his facial hair, which is definitely sort of coming in. Musketeer-esque, I'd say. <laughs> anyway, gents, that is, uh, that is our show. Thank you very much for listening, dear listener. Taylor, thank you very much for your time, as always, darling. I'm still laughing at Musketeer. Right back at you, buddy. <laughs> Graham, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks, Ryan. I'm away to drive to England for a pint. <laughs> 